resta ancora Capri a sognare con me non lasciare Capri non lasciare me resta ancora Capri Welcome to iArt New York. This is our 16th segment. The music that you've just been listening to is by the French chanson and accordionist and songwriter Nicole Renault, hailed by the New York Times as having an ethereal soprano voice. And we have just been listening to her song Aresta Ancora a Capri off her album Songo di Capri, Songs of Capri. So in this segment of iArt New York, we are going to be discussing the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and how it has influenced artists. And the title of the show is Humanizing Role of Arts in the Wake of the Public Health Crisis. It's a special episode in which we invite back three of our past guests. And this week, we have our previous guest, Jason Clay Lewis, who will be introduced by Isabel in a moment. iArt New York is a program that brings you alternative insights into the art community in, in New York City. And it is hosted by myself, Rebecca Major. I'm an artist and a curatorial intern at the Jewish Museum and I'm studying art history. And Isabella Gola is an artist and visual arts and design curator at the Polish Cultural Institute New York. So without further ado, I'd like to ask Isabella to introduce our guest. So uh, Jason, welcome back. Uh, we hosted you on iArt New York on August 22nd of last year. And we are so happy to have you back in this very strange time right now of this pandemic. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Jason Clay Lewis is an artist and director of the Royal and at the Royal Society of American Art in Brooklyn, New York. His responsibilities include curating and promotion of all gallery exhibitions as well as the day-to-day -day running of the studios. And his newly launched platform, The Royal List, allows artists to create free artist profiles and apply for open call exhibitions at the Royal Gallery. So I, I have a first question for you, which is re regarding the, the current show at the Royal, which is online show called Satellite of Love. Yeah. It opened on May 22nd and uh, it will uh, go until June 21st. It's Correct. a group exhibition co-curated with Katie Hector and Barry Hazard. Uh, as I was going over the press release and looking up the works, it's mainly primarily about artists who are adapting new methods of staying connected in this strange pandemic reality and keeping in touch. And I kind of like the corny sounding satellite of, of love title which embraces like selection of multimedia works. The works that are kind of love at first sight, satisfying, fun, and kind of tongue-in-cheek. And I actually, I wanted to ask you about the tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, what caught sure. my eye is the, the small painting. Um, I mean, there, there are a few works, but uh, one of them is a small painting of Heidi Lee Johnson titled Sisters from this year. That painting quotes on the one of the most, uh, I would say, oddly erotic paintings in Western art from 16th century, the portrait yeah. Gabrielle Besteres, and one of her sisters from uh, 1594, portrait of a mistress of King Henry IV of France and her sister Duchess de Villar. And uh, the, all of the works are very humorous. And the tongue-in-cheek and um, the, the easy connection. What did, you, what did you guys had in mind curating this theme? And, and how did you... How do you see the tongue-in-cheek as a, as a device in response to this uh, social f distancing, physical distancing, and, and the grotesque of this new strange reality? And, uh, and the tongue-in-cheek itself, uh, its relation well, I... to the kitsch, and how did you activate this? Well, it's like um, the last couple shows have been interesting since the crisis has started. And um, the one before this was um, the social distancing show, and that was more like a photography show, much more serious, much more um, dark and monochromatic in tone. And so it's interesting how we have the four different curators. We have Katie, Alona, Amelia, and Janet, and they all sort of have their same or different types of um, aesthetic when it comes to curating shows. And it just turned out that Katie's um, show was going to be next, and that was the Satellite of Love. So when we started talking about the show, you know, it was a way of like, okay, we had this sort of really dark kind of, you know, show to begin with, but now that we have a little bit of time, it had passed already that month, it was like, okay, now let's look for maybe how do we raise the spirits, how do we find something positive, you know, everything can't be down, we have to look towards the future, and right now that's a really hard thing to do. But it was like during for the planning of the show, it was like, okay, let's have a positive outlet and let's let's look at the fun part and see what people are doing. And in that in um the painting that's by Heidi, um, you know, I think that piece that you reference, um, the painting that you reference, the portrait, in our eyes in the modern sort of context, it's sort of like uh, two women and you can see sort of like it's almost like they're a couple. It's a, it, it could be a gay, lesbian sort of reaction to it. But I think at the time period when that was actually done in the 16th century, because it was the king's mistress, she was actually, it was the telling everyone that she was actually pregnant, basically, at that time. And I think there's, you know, there is a difference between how Europeans view sexuality versus, you know, the Western world viewing sexuality at the time period and even now so that, it's kind of like the, that's a very interesting painting but I think in general it's like we were really just looking to see like let's put in a really eclectic fun you know energetic sort of show together and um, and then see what happens mm -hmm. it's definitely hard to miss if you go online the aesthetic from one show to the next as you mentioned earlier, the social distance exhibition was monochromatic and it also showed video that was shot mostly in monochromatic and it had angst, to say the least, one of the videos, there was screaming and kind of this idea of isolation and darkness. And the next show was very vibrant in colors and really saturated hues. But I think interesting how these 
as you mentioned, the stages are almost like the, you know, how the five stages of acceptance, or you can't remember them in the right order, but we go through these um, stages, whether it be acceptance or in this situation, let's say, well, we have to accept this situation as well, but we go through stages like uh, from maybe fear and panic or anxiety to, okay, now we are in this situation. How do we make the best of it? What's the next step? How can we find pleasure in this situation? And, you know, the weather has been unbelievable. So no one can say that we haven't been uh, blessed with amazing weather here in New York, right? So there's always something to kind of take away that's been great from this experience, like the, you know, how the city has become more quiet, less pollution. Like there's always something positive. What is your plan for next show? Is it going to be more of a conversation about these stages? Are you planning on continuing this thought in the next step? Well, I think, I think what's happening in for the um, next show is Ilona is actually, she's the photographer and of the, the partners. And, um, she actually curated the, we co-curated the social distance show together but she's actually doing um, more of a. <clears throat> it's it's actually a, it's it's an individual um, person that she's focusing on, but it's multiple artists that are doing work that relates to the the sort of like um, isolation of this one person that's a she's uh, friends with, mm-hmm. and so the work sort of centers around that, and it is and it goes it sort of deals with cirrhosis. It deals with sort of the darkness that sort of can come. So we're kind of switching back again to that sort of like a, a completely more insular um, where like it's like, as you say, the different stages, like right now we're all sort of by ourselves. We're all sort of isolated. And that show is going to be more about isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I think the next show after that will actually be a, a larger open call and, I'm hoping at that point that'll be like basically the end of July, August show. And that show will actually, we hope, we'll, we'll actually have physical work in the gallery and then we will be able to have people come and that will be um, uh, bringing much more, you know, in- interaction with what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, follow up on the second part of my previous uh, question with the, the tongue-in-cheek aesthetic because that I found that very refreshing actually. And um, how you see this as the method of uh, staying connected? Is this a device? Um, I see references to primitivism, actually, in some of the works, like in Tom Prinzel, uh with the room mm-hmm. with creatures of fantasy, with this, like, uh, from last year, with this demonic ritualistic vibe. And primitivism was an um, art movement from the late 19th century, it's uh, like Victorian uh, times. And then the tongue-in-cheek, you know, the humor um, and the kitsch all as devices. So were you thinking about those terms and um, why this kind of aesthetic and why now? What kind of devices are they? Well, yeah, I think Tom's work has sort of like a mythological sort of feel to it with the characters and the unicorns and different things like that. Um, it can be sort of, um, it's fantasy-based more than anything else with the characters and the the animals and um, <clears throat> the way that he sort of paints with the, 
you know, the knights and lions and different things like that. So, but in general, the show was, it was, you know, it's like the one fun thing about the different curators is that they all bring their own aesthetic, like I said. And so it just sort of shifts from month to month. It sort of gives us a fresh take on things. And so when we were looking at artists for who are the best artists, well, not, let's not say the best. It's like, you know, you, what I usually do with the shows and with the now the online open calls, the, the original aesthetic was that the, we have the four different curators and then they have their own idea and they sort of bring um, a title, a theme, and possibly a handful of artists that they might want to show or be the main artist for that one show. And then they sort of build a show around like that one specific person or a group of people. And then the online part is like you try to find other artists that kind of help build that sort of story that the original uh, original artists that are being brought to the show are have already sort of started and created. So I think that's the sort of playfulness that sort of comes, the kitschiness, because it was like the original artist that Katie had chosen, it's like, they were like the Kelsey, um, she does the, um, that's what we used for like the banner image and like the emails and such like that. Her work is very like performance based and she's like creating props and she's doing little videos and making objects out of just found off, you know, found things and cardboard. And so it was like, how do you find artists that sort of enhance that sort of idea of the playfulness of what's happening because it's like okay we're going through this crisis and we're all going a little crazy and then now let's center the show about the kind of craziness that's happening and it's like this is already work that was already being done but it sort of relates to how we're kind of feeling being isolated right now uh-huh and i have a question that's related to that um you're the director of our SOAA, the Royal Society of American Art, and also a curator at the Royal, which is a gallery within that same space. And so how has it been for you to have the responsibility of leading the, the space and managing it as an executive manager of it and uh, through, this, through this pandemic and all of the um, trials and hurdles of a small business, I would say, or can I say that? I mean, you know, it's a gallery. Sure. So there, there, of course, there are financial responsibilities that artistic spaces are not exempt from. And, and how do you manage to be creative within that, the confines of those stresses, those daily stresses? I feel very fortunate um, for one that we, we do have this space. It's an incredible space. And I sort of make sure that, you know, everybody is happy. Everybody, uh, we all sort of have to get along. I have to make sure all the little things to keep each person, you know, whatever needs to be done. And then if someone leaves, I try to steal that space. And then having the four partners that help run the gallery, um, you know, in some ways I joke that it's like, you know, they're, we're basically, it's like it's they're helping curate a space. It's like instead, it's a, it's an empty space, but luckily we get to actually fill it with art every month because they are involved. And that's very exciting. Um, in as my own, like I, it's been absolutely amazing having these four ladies be part of the gallery. Um, just because it's like I am 
it's like things change month to month and you see the different type of energy that comes from the different shows that we've had and I'm able to sort of keep things on schedule and keep things moving. And so that has been really great. And as for my own practice in the studio, it's like as long as I don't, I don't like a lot of upheaval, which is what we're in right now, but as long as everything is sort of running smoothly, then I can work in my studio, and I have studio space here, and everything is great. And then mm-hmm. I just kind of manage and make sure everything is running the way it kind of should be. So I've been following the podcast series that you have launched at the Royal List, and you recently had Roxanne Jackson, the ceramic artist, on. That's a new initiative, right? Would you talk about it? When did you launch it? And, um, and how, do you, how do you select artists for this series? Well, it's not really a podcast. It's more like I'm doing interviews, and um, it's, it's only written, so there's no sound to the interviews. So um, I'm doing the interviews, I'm like um, choosing my artists by based on like some artists that I really like, um, others that I've been friends with, uh, others that I've actually um, curated in different shows. Um, Roxanne I met at the um, Socrates Sculpture Park um, when we did the Emerging Arts um, sort of summer there um, program and it was about 10 years ago. And uh, we've been friends ever since. And so I've been following her work, and I've, I've curated her into a show about three or four years ago, basically here at the Royal. Um, so it's been really fun. It's, it actually started around December, um, and I started doing interviews of people. And I've got probably, I don't know, a half a dozen right now that are sort of in the works. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit longer than I would like um, to get uh, to the next the next interview but it's been really fun reaching out to people and sort of uh, and especially the artists that I admire and care about and want to support um, to give them you know another platform to uh, sort of say something about uh, what they're doing. So have you found the online platform to be a way to reach an art community in lieu of a physical space? Have you found it to be a successful way to communicate? Well the the one thing I can say is, like, you know, doing the um, doing the royal list and creating the artist profiles, uh, it's like the the most exciting thing for me is actually about, it feels like maybe about a quarter of the people that are on there are either, are from actually different countries, um, and also the people that have been applying for the open calls have been from either different states or different countries. And so even in just this last show, um, we had one artist we chose that was from Israel, one was from Connecticut, um, one was from Massachusetts, and the other ones were in the surrounding boroughs here in New York, Boston, or New York and Queens, in the Bronx. Um, and so we had one person actually from Boston also. <clears throat> so, it, you know, to me the really exciting part is when I, it's like, I am able to give opportunities to people and, you know, showcase their artwork and they're from completely different countries and it's an international platform. And that's one thing I actually love here in the studio. When I rent different studios, I've been very fortunate that um, I've had, like right now I have someone here from New Zealand 
and I have another person that had just moved here from Israel. And before that, there was a um, a friend now that was um, has gone back to Austria, and then a very close person that was here working, and he was from uh, Japan. So it's kind of like that's another part of New York that's sort of exciting and mm -hmm. good. You know, it's amazing when that happens. But the same thing's kind of happening online when we have our online uh, open calls now. Mm -hmm. And would you also talk about your own art practice? Because I know that you do spend time in the studio actually for for most of the day. So how how does it progress, or how did it um, transform, and uh, your day-to-day -day life as an artist in in general, just focusing on your own practice? How is it working out now, and what are you what are you working on actually? Um, at the moment, I'm actually working on a series um, based on well, it's called the Triumph of Death, which is it was a painting by Peter Bruegel, and um, I was been doing these relief paintings where it's like large brushstrokes and color and seeing the movement and sort of frenetic action of the the paint and brushstroke. And so with the pandemic, it's sort of like the work. It was like okay, it's like the work turned a little darker than it was before when I was just basically sort of like testing and doing, you know, thinking about more like color and motion, but. With this last series, I was like, well, let's put something behind the actual the abstracted brushwork, even though you can't see it. So it's like I was looking, and I sort of had this picture of the triumph of death in, in my mind, and it's basically a painting that was about, you know, a pandemic, a plague, and it's the world is kind of on fire and you have the rider of death sort of sweeping through, you know, crowds of people. And it's, it's a very scary image from the 16th century. So <clears throat> anyway, I started working on that and that was sort of like, um, I was doing a few tests and smaller pieces and then I ramped up and did a, a four panel piece. And now I'm working on another, a, a sort of a, a two panel um, section piece. And it's using a different image, but it's sort of in that same vein. So I want to follow up on that. So, because I've seen those paintings on your website, and um, I was not able to see the Peter Bruegel um, painting that you're referring to. So is it, can you just, is it under, you're saying it's underneath those layers, and it's influencing exactly. the painting by just knowing that it's there, but you can't really decipher it or see it? Or do you think if I go back to those paintings and look at them now, knowing that they're there, will I see them? Do you think? Well, I don't know. You, you won't necessarily see them, although there are certain, it's like where certain shapes happen within a painting, like whether it's a vertical or a horizontal or some chaotic section. It's like I'm trying to mimic that sort of thing that is happening in that original painting. But one thing I always sort of, even when I first started making work, it was like, I like this sort of archaeology part of um, looking through something and how, you know, 200 years from now or 200 years uh, older paintings, like we're looking using x-rays and you see that, oh, a figure was here, a figure was standing, this is where an arm moved, this is where something changed. And there's something sort of exciting about having more information the deeper in the 
farther back you go within the work so this, of how it was made. Th this sounds like a very conceptual painting because of this layering an idea that you have about how to relate to history. You know, it's, it's, some of it is just like we're always struggling to have something to say. You want the work to say and mean something, and sometimes it's only to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it's like there's got to be a reason why you're making something. Not always, but it's like for me, it's, um, you know, you, you keep pushing. It's like, okay, I want to say something, but I want it to be more but I want to continue in the vein that I've been working. So yeah. anyway, this is just another layer for myself to give myself sort of like something to play against and something to talk about. And yeah, and think about so since since we opened this avenue of investigation, how do you see the the now and looking back at history of, of how a, a civilian from the Middle Ages when Preta Borgil was alive and how they related to pandemics and death and plague and, you know, those very you know, life-changing, life-altering, and scary challenges to our current situation? Well, in, in some ways, I feel like um, artists are sort of always sort of, or I don't know about always, but artists often need or say, you tell yourself you want more time. And we're, I think, used to the isolation because it's like you end up spending hours in your studio working on a certain project. And so I think as time goes on and, you know, you grow, you get older, it's like you, you think, oh, if I just had more time to, to focus on what I want to do, what, you know, if I could just reach my own potential. And we're sort of always coming up against that sort of wall of like, how do I have more time? How do I keep growing? How do I keep pushing? You know, and so times like this, it's like, you know, I, I have, actually have a friend who, uh, it's like he was working in a restaurant and he got laid off as, you know, many Americans. And, and he's like, you know, this is the first time because he's been working, you know, full time for the last, I don't know how long. Um, he's like, since I was in grad school, that I actually had time to focus on his work, you know. So he's trying to find a silver lining, you know, in all the darkness and everything that's happening and you know, about his work. Right. That's really I, interesting. I, I, I have to just interject personally. I've had that same experience of this uh, forced slowdown and to kind of stop a person from their normal routine. There is something in it that is um, valuable. And it goes into what you're saying about assessing how you spend your time and where you are in, in your life. And, and also, valuing each day. I mean, I have noticed that each day goes by so much faster now that I'm stuck at home and not working that I'm like, wow, a day is actually really short because when you're running around, it somehow feels longer because you can get so much accomplished in a day. And then when you're sitting still and you're not busying yourself, it, you know, you realize how short life is, that motto, you know, it's a time for just noticing, you know. Um, well, I think, I think art, great art comes out of like, great upheavals in some ways and it, this is talking about you know silver lining so just for a moment you know um artists need something to speak out against to stand up against fight against something I mean, this is not all the time but a lot of times it's like you know you have different periods of time that when 
you know, during the First World War, afterwards, it was sort of Dada and Surrealism sort of came after that. And then in the Second World War, it was sort of like existentialism and gestural abstraction and all these different things that came from that. So it's like, we don't know yet. Like, right now, we're in the dark times. We're in, like, the... We don't really know what the future is holding, and we don't know exactly where the art world is going. It's like you can kind of see the trends, but it's like until we're, you know, a, a ways from it, we won't actually know what's coming. Like, we, we've just kind of gotten out of a period where China was very powerful, and Chinese international artists and Asian artists were sort of taking over the art world in some ways. And so now that period seems to be ending and now there's this great upheaval in so like what is the next thing that's going to come and so that's you know art artists keep working they keep you know creating new things and that sort of never stops mm-hmm. what is your forecast for small galleries in new york that's a tough question and i think that's conjecture at this point but how do you see the future well i don't want to get too dark with everything but you you do kind of see that, you know, as even leading, even before this, it's like the, we sort of had gone through a period where art fairs were the place to be. People are spending huge amounts of money to go to different fairs. And it was like the big mega galleries were sort of taking control. And any artist that was, we already see how things have been changing where the, big mega galleries had sort of been taking blue chip artists away from sort of the mid-tier galleries. And so um, everyone had also moved on to start going to art fairs and spending lots of money to be at the different art fairs because that seemed to be where the art market was going and collectors were buying work in the at art fairs instead of in galleries. Now, that was sort of pushing some smaller galleries out. So not to go back to the very first point of like not to go too dark but now it seems like you know it's going to be even harder for a small gallery to survive and you know in some ways this is very sad and it's like I don't know what the solution is right now but I think it's also going to affect you know thousands and thousands of artists because you know there's a time period you know in the 80s let's say when there's art stars were starting to be created and, you know, paintings and younger artists were bringing huge amounts of money and you could be this, like, rock star of the art world. And, you know, that was very enticing. So you have, you know, thousands of artists since then that have just said, oh, you know, I want to be an artist. I can be an artist. I can do it. And, you know, you come out of art school thinking that it's like that's just the norm. And it's like, you know, you have one big show and you become a, a rock star. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's this sort of situation of like the, fi- it's you know, it's the financial crisis, it's the virus, it's everything coming together. It's like, it's really going to, very sadly, a lot of people will either, you know, they'll have to go find a way to survive, they'll have to move away from New York, they'll have to you know, find a different way to either continue and that may stop a lot of people. If you don't have that really intense passion, you know, a lot of those people will sort of disappear, um, which kind of happens anyway. You know, um, every year it's like people come and go 
and that's one of the best things about New York. There's always something new, but this is definitely a very scary time. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of roll back to the, your new series of paintings that you're working on. Sure. Uh, the the phonetic actions you call them. Yeah. Uh, with the brush strokes over the Bruegel's uh, Rider of Death, right? Right. So, yes. um, have are you covering the whole uh, painting or its sections? Do you select uh, like parts of the painting? Your process, sort of the idea of the series, reminds me of Lara Favaretto's painting from uh, 2010 which I saw at MoMA PS1, titled a uh, bunch of numbers, like, uh, you know, uh, and a letter, two, three, two, seven, two, C. I wonder, how do you title your series? And if you could elaborate more on this gesture of concealing. Do you know this artist? Do you know her work? Yeah, I, I know mainly the sculptural element. Right, uh, so this, this work is also sculptural, this, this yeah. painting, because she... She takes a found painting and she covers it, she, mm -hmm. she wraps it in wool strings and it's quite large format. I mean, this is 31 by 59 inches and I thought it was mesmerizing because you could sort of see, I mean, she did the concealing in a way that you could still see some contours, some uh, representation that was on the original painting that she appropriated but the main gesture was pointing to this concealing but you could still see the painting in your case you're covering the painting the rider of death uh, with your brush strokes so that in the end it's it's erased there is uh, it's uh, blank slate or there's new content imposed and there is old content is gone so, uh, that, that is, that yeah, is would you true, explain your process? That when, when, I'm, when I'm actually originally doing the, the drawing on the canvas, it's actually raw canvas, and it actually bleeds into the back. So you can actually see from the back of the painting, you can actually see that there's something hidden under that, those brush strokes. So there, there is there's sort of a telltale sign of something has happened before. And in some ways, it's, it's interesting because it's like I, I kind of started this process because I was looking for uh, something that was, you know, quicker and faster and how to make a mark and have it be sort of gestural. And with this sort of adding this sort of element and breaking things down and doing the drawing behind, it sort of like extended my process. So it's become much more involved than I had originally wanted when I started this body of work. But, um, mm -hmm. So I, it's, I, it's I, not a collage, it's an actual drawing, a redrawing of the uh, Bruegel painting? It is. I see. Yes. So I see it as kind of also like a merging of these two histories through your hand. I, originally, I thought it was like you were actually pasting parts of the, um, like a, a collage style, but somehow reworking uh, another artists uh, painting from another era dealing with the same idea, theme, pandemic. Were you looking to connect these two histories through that yeah, act? Yeah, it, it was very, it was very apt um, for the moment, basically. And even my, my very first one-man show that I had here in New York was called The Black Death. And mm. it's like every piece that I, was, that I did sort when of was dealt that? with the play in some ways. Uh, no, that was uh, that was a long time ago. I'm not even sure what the year was at this <laughs> point. Um, 
it's so England that I had been um, basically in, in Oklahoma every single year um, with, when you have the the harvest after the harvest they actually at that time period they've sort of stopped the process there's it's not as many people do it now but they used to burn the, the wheat fields so it's like you actually you it's like the it's what's left over after harvesting so you've already harvested the wheat but you still have some of the straw left over. So and if you can't bale that straw, then whatever's left over, then you actually burn, and then you can till the earth, and then you can replant again. Mm-hmm. So during that project, it's like I did video and took photographs, and it was like, you know, during that time of the year, it's it's kind of scary in some ways when you drive... Between in Oklahoma, it's like every 20 or 30 minutes, there's another little tiny little town. So in that 20 to 30 minutes of driving, it's like no matter where you were during that time period, it's like you see like smoke on the horizon of like these fields that were burning. So it kind of it felt it's like this post-apocalyptic sort of world where everything is on fire, mm-hmm. and that's what that original show was kind of based around. And so now that we're in this middle of this pandemic, it was like, okay, how do I bring sort of that idea back and to what I'm doing right now? And so this was sort of like the, the triumph of death by Bruegel was sort of like that bridge that sort of like put those two things together for me. And it's interesting because uh, before, Rebecca, you mentioned the five stages and actually, the, uh, so the first one is denial. Mm-hmm. So like uh, I'm making the connection here uh, with the act of concealing, uh, hiding, uh, removing. It's like denying in a way the, you know, the, um, the previous truth. And I've been thinking about like how um, Trump, for example, is concealing uh, the truth <laughs> about many things. And lying every day during the briefings, I don't, I'm not even sure if he's doing them anymore because I just can't watch it. But like how he's taking the hydroxychloroquine just to prove he's wrong, but he's still so, so wrong. So trying to hide the elephant in the room. And, um, and then like I'm concealing watching news. Like I can't, I can't process so much information. So I just conceal it through. Um, or um, diluted through humor, watching Stephen Colbert instead of, you know, news sometimes, just to conceal some of that um, uh, harsh reality. But uh, were you thinking about any any of these, uh, you know, um, atrocities happening right now as a result of this pandemic? There's many, you know, negative things happening and uh, the act of denial and concealing in, in that way? Is that, your, um, is that your self-therapy in a way to deal with, uh, with this reality? Yeah, in some ways, I mean, you know, we're dealing, we're in time right now, just unimaginable loss and tragedy. And it's like, you know, how you know, artists, you know, and myself, it's like, you know, how do you make something that says something that you, you, you're constantly or I'm constantly pushing to like, you know, I have something to say, but how do I say it? How do I do it? How do I make it? How do I create something that's going to touch someone and it's going to say something about our times? You know, you can you can do things that are very quick, 
and it's like um, that going and protesting. It's like you make a sign and you're carrying a sign, and it's sort of like a you know automatic gesture. But in art, you know, if you want art, great art or the art that I think of as great, it's like you look through time, and it's like what are the works that we focus on that have meaning that have lasted the test of time, you know, instead of lasting just this week or this year or, you know, it's only going to have a 10-year lifespan. And that, that's not always as exciting or as romantic as uh, some things can be, but it's like, you know, it's like, how do you, it's like, how do you make that thing last? And so ultimately it's like, I guess I, I'm, I chose this painting, I'm doing this work because it's like, okay, this is something that I'm trying to say, this something I'm trying to put out into the world, but it's like, I need there to be some story. It's like, this is being made during this time period, and this is, you know, just taking a, a, a regular painting and you just title it something, you know, that's sometimes enough that it's like, you know, this is what I want to talk about, and this is what the painting is about. It's like, you know, 99 out of 100 would never see that that title relates to that painting, but it yet, this is what the artist was thinking about when they make or made that work. So you mentioned that there are works that last through time, that are timeless. And I wanted to ask you, what are those works of art that always stay with you, that you come back to? Uh, this is what I was uh, thinking about also lately. Like what, what works are really timeless and uh, transgressing enough that you come back to, well, uh, Rider of Death, obviously. Um, what, what else would you list? Well, I think, you know, I mean, there's obviously the, the big artists in the contemporary world, modern art that, you know, it's like, we, we, it's like Picasso or the, I go back to artists like Van Gogh, but if, you know, you, this work is going back to like the mid 16th century. So, you know, I, I'm often gravitate towards art that has a much darker sort of context to it, more macabre in some ways. And to me, that sort of like, you know, it uh, stands the test of time. And, you know, one uh, more contemporary would be like a Basquiat, where it's like, you know, his work can be very childish looking, you know, scrawling and figures. But it's like, if you look underneath the subject matter, it's like it's sometimes there's a real darkness um uh, to that work and it's one reason i believe that it's like that work still resonates today mm -hmm. so thank you for um all of your insights we're going to be starting to wrap it up i do have one more question which is um also an observation that you know all of your insights into your practice has been really incredible to hear your process and just a testament to the fact that it hasn't hindered your artistic inquiries and in fact it seems to have stimulated work for you and not just your own studio art practice but your curatorial projects and that's in uh, conjunction with your managing a um, being the executive director of the space as well so that's really a lot to juggle i just want to ask as the last question thank you again for explaining all of your processes and your insights into your artistic process but my question is what do you have um um planned for the future what is the first thing you'd like to do when the art world comes back into the real tactile platform 
Well, obviously the art world is changing, and um, the I to this, I guess sort of I would just say when when we come into the real world again, and we're actually able to see friends and really be around, you know, that that's like the best part of the art world is the social part, and I guess it's just I want to embrace my friends, give them a hug, you know, have a beer and cheers, and uh, you know when you can smile and be close and feel that comfort of that support that uh, we all sort of have together. I think that would be the thing. It, you know, it's like every, everything right now is going to sort of virtual studio visits, live streaming on Instagram or virtual tours of exhibitions. And it's like eventually we're going to come back and it's going to be, you know, the sort of taking care and building community. And that's what I really want to focus on when things get back and you know part of having the online open calls right now is just sort of giving people opportunities showing people that you know you can still put things out there and you can make and have amazing experiences and when we come back together we can keep this going and we can have a better positive outlook on the future and things are going to be great mm -hmm. thank you for leaving us with that uh yeah to look forward to yes and the actual light at the end of the tunnel now i see the mm -hmm. virtue of that light and what you mean by that uh, so anything well, that you would like to announce for us um no anything i mean i i think the next thing is just like you know right now it's a time of like art is about breaking rules it's like taking risks you know we have to adapt. oh yeah since when <laughs> um, you, you you have to just refuse to be dull and boring and responsible it's like you know this is a time like if you're in your studio it's like get after it you know it's like things are going to come back don't but make right excuses now, like, don't conceal yourself it. don't hide yourself just exactly. get in there and yeah. also i wanted to remind our listeners that if you want to hear more about jason isabella and i interviewed him on september 1st of last year so check that out and in that interview we also interviewed Amelia Bewald and Janet Rutkowski. Um, and it was a really fantastic interview. We got to speak with each of them about extensively about their curatorial vision and artistic history. And so check that episode out. And of course, go to their website and uh, find out more about their online registry and what they do and check out their online show, which is beautiful. I really actually love the straightforward platform that you've made because I've checked out a friend's um, online gallery show and it, it was a virtual tour where you're like seeing walls and you're kind of navigating and it just didn't work. So I really appreciate the more straightforward where it's really about the artwork and you can really see the artwork. And um, of course, it's not the same as seeing it in person, but it's pretty good. It's like, it's, it's as good as your screen is. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, we do our um, best. Looking forward to the uh, large open call uh, show that will be in the end of July. Yeah, well, I think it would be basically all of August. So, yes. Okay, so stay tuned at theroyallist.com for more information on that. And Jason, thank you so much for being back on our show and catching up, touching base in the midst of this pandemic. And um, thank you so much for all, all sharing all your advices and ideas. Yes, thank you. And and the music outro we're listening to is by the artist Nicole Renault and her song Le Mepri. Thank you. 
and stay tuned to Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs>